Okay, so this is Steve talking, this is how I'm going to sound. And this is Charles talking, and this is how I sound. All right, do you tend to get louder or quieter by a whole lot when you do? This is, this this is, is about it. You're very even a, feel. A slightly low mumble. Mm. <laughs> get ready, folks. Hey everybody, uh, this is Steve Gaynor, I'm here with Charles Webb from Hangar 13, and you are listening to Tone Control. Thank you for, uh, for joining me for this, Charles. Hey, thank you for talking to me, dude. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we've um, we followed each other on Twitter for a little while, and I, I became aware of your work, like I'm sure a lot of people did, um, from Mafia 3, um, which you were a a the senior writer on a a senior writer on on Mafia Three three man writing team okay yeah. um, and so uh, you know I want to talk about your career and your work on uh, on Mafia but also you know what led up to that and really what influences how you think about writing for games and 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 working on games and how that's led to what you're doing now at, at Hangar Thirteen um, something that is is funny for me is this is the first time that I'm back on site here since I worked at uh, 2K Marin uh, on, on Bioshock 2. So it's funny just to think that, you know, I was playing Mafia 3, and I, 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 I love the game. I played through all of it. Um, and uh, it was just so funny to me to be like, yeah, they they built this, like, in the building that I used to work in, and now it's back to visit. It's really interesting. How does it feel being back? It's, uh, it's, it's strange. <laughs> I feel like um, it's a lot more... Uh, polished here than it was <laughs> like i'm like oh wow they uh, they really dress this place up <laughs> but when I, when I came back and came on board you know i understood that like it wasn't the wild west days or anything like that but there are more people here now and there's kind of a little bit more structure here now and, and you guys hustled along to make something really really great with nervous den and with bioshock too and and we have a lot more support and we've been trying to to, to make something as good <laughs> well and I mean Mafia 3 is a huge game like that, that must have been a lot of people yeah. on it right I think there's a couple of people that I worked with that are that are still that that shipped that game um, I don't know if you how close did, did you get close with the, the development team at all like Completely entrenched with them, but uh, yeah. if you ask me everyone's resume, I'm not going to... Right, right. Too. No, but I think that Devin St. Clair is still S- working here. Still here, still yeah. great, yeah. Yeah, I know. Devin's fantastic. He was the lead artist on Minerva's Den, and uh, he would go out in the uh, parking lot and play as Kalimba, uh, and I would just hear the, the, the plinking of the Kalimba wafting across the... The, the tarmac. It was wonderful. Um, so I should see if I can say hi to him before I leave, if he's around. Um, but... Rewinding from there, um, Charles, you've written for and worked on a lot of different games uh, up to this point. But I mean, even before that, uh, tell me about like where you grew up. Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida. Oh, yeah. did, we've talked about this, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I also grew up in like the Tampa Clearwater area. <laughs> yeah, uh, I jokingly refer to myself as Florida water trash. My wife <laughs> does not care for that. Uh, yeah, you know, southern kid grew up in the Sunshine State. Lived in Texas for a little while, back yeah. to Florida. Um, it's a very, very different life. Yeah. And I've kind of bounced all over the country. You yeah. Know? Uh, Texas, Philly, New York, Seattle, here. Yeah. So I've touched all the corners. If you yeah, yeah, yeah. You really have. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, 
So what what uh, you know what were you into as a kid that you feel like has like influenced you to you know go down the, the path that you're on as a creative person? This is gonna make me sound like the most static human being in the entire world, but pretty much this like uh, you know I was an only child, so it was a lot of like indoor kid stuff. You know, we moved around a little bit. So yeah. it was a lot of reading. It was a lot of comics, and you know when we could afford them, it was video games. And, yeah. and uh, I, you know, it's just joking the other day that like I would do grocery shopping for my grandmother and like as a present for me whenever I would do that for each month she'd buy me a new book or a new video game magazine and it was just like (laughs) that was my little insight into the world outside of the world that I had yeah no I I had a very it's funny how much overlap there is because yeah I'm an only child and my grandmother I think for either Christmas or my birthday every year would renew my subscription to Nintendo Power (laughs) and so I would go through and either see that like this game is supposed to be good and I would ask for it for Christmas or rent it or whatever or just fold out those big maps and be like wow Castlevania 3 <laughs> you know like, and it was so uh, like bold and, and, and beautiful I wish kids had something similar today I wish they had something like even those were like fanish publications they they felt like this thing that was like an insight into this world that I did not know anything about you know yeah video games as far as I understood it were you know a cheap ass Atari and this this not exactly very visual representative medium and then yeah. you look into an Nintendo Power issue and it's this it's art it's yeah. this beautiful uh, uh, Yoshitaka Amano illustrations and, and right. like all these big clay you know claymation right. and stuff like that so, okay okay cool I want to do that I want to be a part of that Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember specifically reading the the original Final Fantasy stuff in Nintendo Power and reading, like, the Nintendo Power Guide for Final Fantasy and all of that art, you know, all of the... Um, like, even the, the, the comics that they did, you know, like the, the Howard and Nestor comics and, like, the Zelda comics and stuff, they really brought that world of kind of what games are about into a space that the games couldn't do at that time. Yeah. Did you feel like at the time that was... Did it get its hooks in you then, or was it just more, oh, this is really fun, and this is kind of a cool thing that I want to consume, or is it was it a thing that you wanted to do? <clears throat> well, it kind of went back and forth. I remember... So I remember when I was a little kid, like maybe when I was like six or seven, it was probably around that time when I played Final Fantasy, that I told my mom, I either want to be a house builder, i.e., I don't know, you're, you're a little kid and you're into like construction, you know, equipment and, and whatever, you know, big trucks and stuff, or... I think I think my phrasing was draw pictures for video games, um, and it that you know I didn't like have that laser focus all throughout my upbringing, but I ended up coming back to realizing like oh yeah I do love video games and people make them you know like and then I ended up making a video game where it's all about a house that I built. <laughs> so, hey. You did both. I did both, Mom. That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, what, what about you? Did you feel like you had that focus as a kid, or was it all kind of just bubbling around you? Believe it or not, I knew that I wanted to write since I was like maybe six or seven. Yeah. I just didn't know exactly what shape that was going to take. You know, yeah. I was a voracious reader and, and, you know, kind of precious and obnoxious about it. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the little lord sitting in the corner just reading his little comic books and novels. But I had a sense that, that was something that I wanted to do. Like I enjoy words, and I yeah. enjoy words, and I enjoy the feel of like creating them, and then getting anxious about whether or not they're going to be something that lands with people. Yeah. Um, but it was years before, and I talk to a lot of people about this whenever I tell them what what I do, and yeah. I get that same reaction. I wasn't really aware of this being a thing that people do. Oh yeah. And I wasn't aware that creating a narrative for a game, 
essentially putting words into a game, putting words into that space was a thing that existed. Yes, yeah. uh, and it, and it wasn't as much yeah. back then. You know, I mean, there certainly was story and there was writing in games, but I think that even more so back then, you wouldn't have been like, I want to be a, a scribe <laughs> for for games. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I had a sense of, of of like having these experiences with games that resonated with me because of the narrative. I, th- I forgot which um, which Dragon Quest it was. I think it was like the second or third one. But it's sure. the one where uh, you have to make a choice at the end whether or not you're going to rule aside, rule alongside the great ancient evil or fight them. Yeah. And if you decide to rule alongside them, they actually put you into a coma, and it's like a game over. And I was like, yeah. wow, that's really cool. This yeah. is. This is actually a thing. This is uh, I made a choice here, and, and it's reflected in this narrative, and now yeah. this narrative lives with me. And I don't know. Uh, that didn't really... It, it wasn't really a thing that I, I thought about consciously until much later. It's like, oh, there are these really deep experiences that I was playing as a kid, and I, I don't know, it, it, it sort of lived with me. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I had a similar um, kind of point in... In my, it was it was really like yeah when I was in college that I was sort of like well I've always like written and drawn comics and like I'm interested in movies and stuff but it it took me a long time to realize that the things creatively that I spent the most time just thinking about and being obsessed with and that affected me the most and I felt like had the most potential to like do things with that haven't been done yet was games and I think it's that it's getting over that hurdle of like. Oh, right. Like, you know that people write books. Yes. But, like, at some point you don't... Th- like, I think it's easy for you coming up not to even realize, like, oh, well, people make games, too. I, ge- I guess I could do that, <laughs> you yeah, know? Absolutely. Yeah. What was, your, um, what was your turning point for kind of realizing it's something that you, like, could do and, like, trying to figure out how to pursue that? There was a job posting. Really? Uh, I was living in Philly at the time, yeah. uh, and there was a posting for the studio called Longtail in New York, and uh, just on a lark you know yeah. I sent in a resume and like this little martial arts script that I'd written and uh, you know something resonated with them they were kind of excited about that yeah. and uh, I ended up commuting by China, via Chinatown bus for nine months to that first video wow. game job back in 2005 yeah was, so was that like when you were right out of college oh, or god no no, no, no. <laughs> I, well, what so, what did you so go to school for? Did you go psych- to school for psychology? Okay, yeah, I have a wow. bachelor's in psychology, um, Chinese minor, sociolo- sociology minor. Mm. Uh, spent a long time not graduating from college and working at a video store. Sure, yeah. So uh, did a, did a, did a lot with both of those, obviously. Right. Um, yeah, I just kind of reached this point in my mid twenties where I wasn't really doing the thing that I should be doing which is writing and uh, it kind of came time to just chase that otherwise I was going to stagnate yeah Yeah. well that's so interesting so you so you got a you got a you say a psychology degree okay Um, what what brought you to that like where why was that what you started down uh, anxiety yeah nothing nothing more than anxiety kind of having this sense that writing is a thing that I'm excited about doing but I'm never going to make money in it right. I'm actually being told this by a family member who meant very very well you yeah. know, it's, the, the, it's that typical family thing of being creative and being in the arts is, is a wonderful and noble thing but you're <laughs> never going to get paid to right. do it so. yeah. you're not going to be able to retire on that right. or whatever. do, do yeah. it for the love which yeah. uh, that's that's advice that I would give someone but I would also say make people pay you to do the thing yeah. that Right. No, I had a similar point where I actually, yeah, I started out in, um, 
in getting a, an English degree because my mother is a teacher and I was like okay that's a stable thing and then I can at the time I was like I'm going to draw comics so I was like that's the thing I could do on the side and then I just remember it was like at the end of my freshman year of college I was like you know what if if I have a plan B I might actually use it so just like I'm transferring into the art program I'm do, like if I don't get to do it then I don't get to do it but I'm going to you know and I think at some point you kind of you know, for for you, it was after you like gotten your degree and kind of gone through that whole loop that you realized you have to do like no matter what else you have around you, like the only way to do the thing is to actually like try to make it the thing you're doing. Just not, do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Did your family? Uh, did you get that that support? Did you get that kind of backing? Um, so I mean, I think people definitely. I think my family definitely encouraged me. Like the reason that I was in a more traditional program was because yeah, they're sort of like, well, we know you like to like draw or whatever, but you could do this. You know, you should have you should have uh, a backup plan. And uh, yeah, I guess I was just like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> I don't know. Like I I was I was uh, uh, fortunate to have the opportunity to say like. I'm going to, you know, I'm able to go to college, and if I'm going to college, I want that to be in support of the thing that I think I actually want to do, um, and, you know, I, my family wasn't like, well, too bad, you know, we're not going to help you pay for college if you don't do this certain program, or, you know, like, we, I, 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 they were supportive in the sense of, like, what I wanted to go to college for, they were going to, you know, like, be in support of, but I think there was also a lot of parental anxiety of like but really you're just you're gonna I feel like not, no, yeah. no matter what the choice is they're probably gonna oh god it's gonna go bad <laughs> yeah well, what if I mean, they run out of doctors what if they run out of lawyers I don't know right yeah well and, I don't know yeah and for me like I moved from Florida to Oregon when I was 19 and it was to live with my then girlfriend who I'm now uh, married to congratulations thank you yeah uh, we've been together for more than half our lives now um but uh, we, you know, I, I think there was a lot of that sort of like, okay, wait, so you're like moving across the country, you're still in college, you're not even going to college for something that we understand how that is going to be your living or whatever. But I think that it's really valuable or you're really lucky if you have a family that is also willing to trust you enough to let you do things that they think might be a mistake or risky or you know the thing that you feel like you have to do even if they wouldn't do that <laughs> you know so, so I'm a worrier a little bit uh, but I try to commit to my choices and it, it's, it's something that I think about a lot I have my own kid you know yeah. she's we're years away from having to worry about this sort of thing but the larger part of my brain that the part that I think is is uh, alert to, to how I got to where I am wants to tell her one day hey fuck a backup plan do the thing, make yourself the thing that you want to be, and then do that thing. Yeah. But there's the other part of me that, you know, grew up with got a whole bunch of money and, and you know, and, and kind of slightly desperate circumstances for a little while. Yeah. But, you know, with a wonderful mom who, who raised me and then a stepdad who, who helped out a lot. That part of my brain gets gets a little hungry and, and worried. And like, yeah. oh, well, maybe also do this other thing. No, no. Do the thing that you want to do. You're only going to know if you fail. Yeah. You're only going to know if you've, you've taken the chance and you've taken the shot and you failed at it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so you got, but I imagine that your psychology degree has influenced your thinking as a creative person. Not, Not really. really? Not wow, really. okay. No, it's, I, I love to read, I, yeah. I think, and I, I think psychology is a, a wonderful way of, of 
having a, a sort of verbiage, a verbiage about how minds work. Yeah. But, uh, I would think it would give you insight into because I mean, so much of writing is about thinking from the character's perspective and what they, the situation they're in, and how they would think about it. I, I've, I've thought about this a lot over the years. Yeah. I feel like it's more psychology tends to give you a clinical language for how people behave but okay. what's more important is having an understanding of what human connections are like and, and yeah. being able to talk about that and that's really more about observing other people and that's really okay. more about observing other types of stories I mean you know what you guys have been able to do you know with Gone Home and stuff like that you've been able to talk about stories that, that families tell and you've been able to talk about like the, the inner relationship between people yeah. um, and that's obviously psychology but it's, it's, it's the psychology of these human beings and I, I think right. I this is my rambling way of saying I don't have that that sort of technical way of speaking about things, but yeah. I do have that way of talking about people as people and understanding yeah. them as people and wanting to understand more about their stories. Right. Yeah, and like you said, that's so much about observing your own relationships with other people and other people's relationships with each other and trying to be um, not analytical, but maybe you know introspective about that. You know, kind of thinking through the messier version of how people actually act or how they react to things and drawing on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's having a clear connection to other folks. And, yeah. Um, that's the thing that, you know, a lot of storytellers struggle with. It's the thing that I struggle with daily. Yeah. Know? What tells the best story and also what is a connection that feels real and feels human? Because, right. you know, you can say a person's family was murdered. That's not going to really matter unless you feel a connection for that character and you feel a connection for those those characters who were killed. Yes. Yeah. Well, and there and there can be so many challenges with like, in, in, when writing fiction, you also have the additional like overhead of saying like just because something might have happened in the real world or could have really happened, there's this other layer of it having to feel believably constructed, you know? Because like in reality, there's a lot of randomness and there's a lot of people making arbitrary decisions, and that's life. But in fiction. The, the 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 audience is always going to be like, well, but why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. It's like people do things that don't make sense, but you have to make their not making sense make sense. <laughs> you know, like it's it's no, all of this pile. You ab know? Absolutely, and it, it's it's making it relatable, and that's yeah. that's kind of a word we we've, we've struggled with here at, at, at Hangar Thirteen. Yeah. Like, uh, making something relatable rather than likable. You know, there yeah. there might be a character who you don't necessarily like. Their motivations right. might not necessarily be your own but you understand right why they would do them yeah you know, we talked a lot about family and, and things like that in the term yeah. in the context of mafia 3 like it's plastered on you know a lot of the marketing and, and it's i think because that's where we started from a lot you know lincoln does what he does because he's motivated by his family you know right. sal marcano does what he does because he's motivated by trying to leave a legacy in place for his son and sorry to, to like jump all the way ahead but no, it, it's fine. It, it kind of informs like a lot of i hope it informs a lot of the writing that I do, you know, yeah. that I'm starting from a position of, I would do this if I were in this position. I might not necessarily be this person. I might not necessarily have this will of darkness or this will of, like, heroism or whatever in right. it. But I would do it because I feel this way. Yeah. Yeah, it's something, and, and the whole, like, likable versus relatable thing is challenging, too, because I think some of the best characters are likable in spite of themselves and I think that it's easy to want a character to be likable in their entirety and that can be really hard because like I don't know I I know I remember thinking explicitly when we started working on Gone Home that I you know having having come off of 
Well, it, it had been a while since I had shipped Minerva's Den, but that was the only project that I had been the writer of and the lead of that project. And I knew from that project that it's like, you just end up spending a lot of time with these characters. Yeah. And in starting working on Gone Home, I was like, the main character needs to be somebody that I like. In terms of, like, that I want to just be in their head for a long time. And finding that balance between, like, I like them enough to want to know them and put their story into the world, but that they also need to be conflicted and complex and maybe not always make the right decision or be the perfect person, um, I think is a is a is an interesting challenge to have to face because I think it can be really easy to either say, well, I'm going to make this like antihero that's like really unlikable, but you're still compelled by them, but then you kind of have to be around this person that you hate all the time yeah. versus well, I'm going to make this person that I that I love and so I can't do anything bad to them because you know and finding how you can relate to a character in a way that'll strike that balance with the audience I think is like interesting. It's it's one of the hardest things. Yeah. Like, while you're talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, the God of War games or at least the first couple they strike this interesting balance. Kratos is a deeply unlikable dude, like yeah. uh, and I don't say that as a as a dig against the game like yeah. The, the first two games are very aware that this is a man who's just motivated by hate. Yeah. Like, he wants to kill everything that he sees. And I, I think the game being cognizant of this fact that, that he's kind of a hateful monster. Yeah. But that it comes from a place of, like, deep wound, you know, a, a deep, deep wound inside yeah. of him. Uh, they got a lot of mileage out of that. That's, mm-hmm. that's an interesting approach to, yeah. to the material. And yeah, and I thought that was totally... I, I only really played the first God of War mm-hmm. game, but, like, in that game I thought it was a totally legitimate... Exploration of that because I because like obviously you know it was a very whatever two thousand five game yeah. right like very gritty and all that but f- I remember playing it and and not find you can you can have a character that is sort of working in that space but isn't just inherently like repellent you know like and, and saying like okay I can occupy this space with this character and and they found a a way for that to be what it feels like they're really about yeah is right. interesting. Um, okay, so so you so what 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 brought you to Philadelphia? Uh, my ex. Okay, uh, she was in vet school, and uh, we were living in Philly together. And okay, it was, so you moved from Florida to Philly. Florida to Houston to Philly. Okay, yeah. all right, cool. Did did you go to school in Houston? Then I guess. Yep. Okay. U of H. Gotcha. Um, man. Uh, so while we're recording this, by the way, is when the crazy floods are going on in Houston. I hope that anybody that you still know there is like I doing all right. I have family there. I've checked in. They are doing all right. Okay. Uh, it is still nerve-wracking to see photos and videos of, of yeah. city streets being It flooded. seems like it's still ongoing. Like oh, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Like uh, it's still the, just getting worse there. One of the dams yeah. is threatening to, to burst. Oh, wow. And, yeah. okay. uh, I was actually there during one of the last big floods. I think it's like 2000, 2000 or 2001. Okay. Uh, I was still working at a video store at that time I went yeah. into work that day yeah. and like uh, you know the water had risen to the point where like one of the freeways was blocked off because oh, wow. there's a lot of like underground you know construction and stuff so yeah um, yeah just all my sympathies and yeah. to all my folks there but I, I yeah, everyone's okay okay good yeah our thoughts are with the people of Houston right now this won't be out for, for a while yet but um, so so you um Okay, so so you were in in Philadelphia, and then you started your first game writing job, and you were you're commuting from 
Philly to New York to do that. What, does that mean that you were working on it remotely a lot, or did you just have to go in like every week? I or? took a three no, I took a three hour uh, bus each way every day. Every day, every day. Did you had six bus. six hours of bus every day. I would be up at five in the morning. I would uh, then sprint from my office at five thirty or six in the afternoon and get home pretty late. Wow. Have about an hour to hang out with my uh, then girlfriend and. Okay, crash. that that is yeah. wild. Because when I started, so my first job in the industry was in QA, and it was it was here in the Bay Area, and I was commuting from San Francisco, you know, central San Francisco to San Mateo, where the um, Sony uh, test uh, offices are. And when I started that job, it was like an hour and a half each way, and I thought I had it bad. <laughs> but damn, man! So for nine months you for were the, doing for the that. first nine months of my time. Wow. Uh, I was there for a couple of years, and yeah. uh, you know. Later on, we moved to Long Island, and that was a much... I felt better about my hour and some change commute. Yeah. Well, the, I, the thing I will say, though, as a, as, as, a, as a reader and a writer, and a, I don't know, at least in, in my case, because my long commutes were more recent, like a, a podcast listener or whatever, there, at, at least you weren't actually driving. Like, it's nice to... There can be a way in which having a few hours that you just have to either be with a book or with something you're listening to without any other stuff that you can do. There can be something that's nice about that in a way. That was a nice stretch of uh, playing PSP games. Yeah, and, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of getting comfortable with some quiet for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I weirdly miss it a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, right now my commute is between Oakland and, and Nevada, okay. which is... Not nearly as bad, but then I have to be alert and try not yeah. to kill people on the road. Yeah, no, because I, you know, I had commutes that were buses and trains, and when I was in Boston working at Irrational, I had like an hour on the train each, or maybe forty-five minutes on the train each way. I mean, I got a lot of. I, I have a really bad attention span for reading, where I like if there's other stuff to distract me, I'll just do that instead of reading. And I feel like when I've had commutes is when I've gotten the most reading done because I'm just like. Here's another, I can I can get through forty pages, you know. I miss books. Yeah, I miss having time for books. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So okay. So so tell me about. Um, so you said that you you got the job at that studio. Remind me of the name of the studio. I'm sorry. Longtail. Longtail. Yeah. So you got that job at at Longtail from a script that you had written. It was about. It was a martial arts story. Was it, was that a, was that a, a script for like a, a comic or for a? It was just a thing that I, I wasn't sure if I wanted it to be a comic. I wasn't sure if I wanted it to be a screenplay. This is just kind of how nebulous things mm-hmm. were for me at the time. Well, um, you were just had you. So had you been. Okay, wait. I feel like I've skipped over something. Okay. So, you're, so you're in Philly. Mm-hmm. Between when you got there and when you applied for this job, what, what were you? What were you doing? I was a proud member of the Blockbuster Video. Uh, oh, you were, you were yeah. doing more. I, I've you, been you doing that the, for okay. a long. Time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, my professional development was just very arrested. Like, yeah. Sure. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't yeah. really know how to articulate it, and I just yeah got comfortable doing this thing because it was bringing in just enough money for me to pay your rent pay, yeah pay my yeah. rent get some food go to the movies every so often right yeah I was because you didn't content. get enough movies happy. from the blockbuster thing you're, <laughs> you're I, I was a voracious movie watcher. yeah 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 right. for sure it's another thing that I miss right now but it, it's it's that, that kind of trap that you can fall into where you're comfortable and that's a, the, a thing that kind of coming back to my kid again I want to warn against like it's cool to feel good and just relax for a little while and enjoy riding that wave. But after yeah. a certain point, you have to decide what is it that you truly want to be doing with the rest of your life because 
that thing that you're dumping all of your time and effort into, that could just end up being it. And, yeah. you know, if I didn't have an ex at the time who, um, you know, I, I still love and appreciate to this day, like, said to me, hey, maybe you should actually get off your ass and do something. Maybe yeah. you should actually make a choice here because right. I'm developing and, 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 and changing and growing and maybe you should do the same. Yeah. Uh, so while you were working at Blockbuster in Philadelphia, did you make an intentional decision like, I'm going to start writing again? Or had you been writing kind of through that whole I had been I had been writing kind of sporadically, but when we had that discussion, I, I just became a little bit more intentional about it. I was yeah. searching out gigs. I was searching out anything, just any kind of writing job with without still okay. a lot of intentionality about it. When I, when I stumbled across this, this post for the gig at Longtail, and it's yeah. like, oh, this sounds like a lot of what I'm excited about, and this sounds like a lot of... I wish I had that original posting, because right. they were very open to the kind of writers uh, that they were looking for. And again, this was around 2005 or so. Yeah. October of 2005. Okay. Specific. And so when you say they were very open, do you just mean they were sort of like, we just want to talk to interesting writers? Like, they were just kind of like looking right. for somebody who had the mindset or the creativity style they were looking for? Yeah, and let me give you kind of a breakdown of what Longtail was like. It sure. was a, a mobile game studio. Uh, Again, this is in 2005, so the iPhone hadn't launched at this point, so this is all for dumb phones. Yeah. Um, and it was all going to be about narrative-based games, choice-driven, choice, uh, dialogue-driven narrative-based games, yeah. which is a weird, weird thing to attempt. But uh, Gerard was like very passionate about, uh, Gerard Gimo, who was the, the president of the company, was very passionate about trying to tell stories in interesting spaces. Yeah. And uh, Well, I mean, so even with a, with a non-smartphone, yeah. you know, there's a lot... Honestly, those phones could do a lot more with like text and audio clips than they could with like great graphics and responsive controls Absolutely. for like an action game or a and platform we, or something. We, we learned there were some interesting things that we could do there. It's, um, it just took a, long, a while to kind of figure out the vision for different things that we wanted to try. And yeah. I was really, really proud to be part of those teams. Like, uh, you know, we had playwrights and we had screenwriters and we had, you know, would be novelists and would be huh. comic writers just. Fucking around with these really, really interesting, not really quite ready for for mobile ideas. Yeah, uh, and you know, I was happy with the work that I did there. Yeah. You know, well, tell me. I mean, what were? Well, it sounds like a really interesting place, Thanks. and it sounds like it it must have been really interesting to be like on site there with such a, a varied group of people that were kind of coming from a lot of different places as far as how they told stories and like what were. Um, what what were some of the the projects like that you worked on there? Because that was your first industry experience. It so, was. It was it, yeah. It's very atypical. Yeah. There were, God, I think at the height maybe like eight or nine writers. Yeah. And can you imagine working anywhere else <laughs> outside of like Bioware? Right. Exactly. Like maybe yeah, Blizzard or something. Right. And, and <laughs> and they're all writing lore for <laughs> for WoW quests. And, yeah. Yeah. A lot of our stuff was. Um, you know, targeted towards like younger audiences. So we had a couple of games called uh, Love Triangle and Love Triangle Two. Where okay. you, uh, the first one you play is this guy who's basically got to choose between these two women, and and you're you're. So is it like a not, dating sim kind of style thing? A, a little bit, yeah. Okay, you yeah. know, you're deciding whether or not to kind of play the asshole and play the charmer, and and he's sort of a dipshit who also doesn't have his life together. Yeah. A lot of that resonated with me, by the way. <laughs> uh, trying to make some choices about his life while, you know, choosing between these two interesting ladies. Hmm. And uh, in the sequel, you play as a young woman who... Uh, I actually may have that flipped around. This, that may have been the second one. Okay. In the sequel, you play as a young lady who... Uh, is attracted to your best friend's your your flighty best friend's boyfriend, and uh, you know there's a lot of sort of navigating and negotiating relationships there. Okay. And um, well, it's interesting, it's, yeah, that it's like it was a 
a game. Like that's one. That, that's one thing that few games really are about, except in in some specific genres. But like, especially I guess in the states, I feel like, especially at that time, there was not a lot of like. In my games writing job, I'm writing about like human relationships and interpersonal issues and stuff. Yeah, and that was kind of the studio ethos. It was like very much about let's tell stories. I think our slogan was games with character. Yeah, uh, and it was very much driven by stories about human beings interrelating with one another. And you know, a lot of them were quote unquote guide games. Like he was, uh, Gerard was very sort of interested in Jungian archetypes and, and hmm. the ways they could be applied to stories. Okay, and he wanted characters who were sort of um, focused on being able to bring their issues out and bring out the issues of other characters, yeah. which is a big hoity-toity way of saying we want them to be people who are going to ultimately be nice people and help other people by the end of the story. Cool. I mean, that's a, that's that feels very uh, progressive to me. You know, like as a as a as an ethos uh, in games at all. But like, I certainly you know I feel like. Yeah, if if you've played any of like Dream Daddy that came out yeah. recently, that feels like a similar ethos where it's like about people actually, at least in in the in the the you know in the end in total being kind of like people that actually want to help each other. Um, people that know. care about each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I th- we actually made a couple of games that were we made one horror game that just I have no idea where it is at this point, yeah. uh, but it was called uh, Exile and it was a horror game and. Even then, it was about this dad who's got a fucked up relationship with his child, and he dies, and he's resurrected by a witch, and you know he's got like a day to find his kid. Huh. And it was still rooted in this guy has to be able to find out things about other people and be able to use those things to be able to find his kid. Yeah. And uh, it was still an interesting approach. Like we still had that mandate at the end of the day. Rex can't be an asshole. I mean, he can be yeah. he can be a jerk, but he can't be an asshole. He yeah. still has to, at the end of the day, be there to find his child. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So so how would you describe your day-to-day on that? Like, were you working directly with, like, programmers or designers on how everything worked? Or was you were you mostly, primarily, like, you know, writing out the storylines and the dialogue? Or what was your role there? It was a little bit of both. Uh, so our... Um our programming team was primarily up in Quebec. Uh, mm. New York was creative, so I see. writers, our art lead, uh, I think our lead programmer was there at the time, if I recall correctly. Okay. And uh, you know, all of our producers, which is kind of a weird way of splitting it up, but there it was. Yeah. Uh, so the writing team, you know, we would get together in the morning and kind of have our writers meeting and you know, discuss all the tasks that we had available for the week or the yeah. things we needed to do for the week. Uh, and from there, it was a lot of just sort of being on that island and writing, knowing yeah. what it is that you needed to write. Um, were we, there a lot of projects going on at the same time? There were. I would assume uh, we, so, yeah. We had a lot of stuff we were juggling. You know, we had, like, a, several dating games. We had a Bridezilla game. We actually, <laughs> did, we actually did a thing with TNA that was really, really cool. Huh. I didn't get to work on that, and I was really bummed out about it. <laughs> uh, is, what, is that... Wait, well, remind me what that is. Uh, that, total nonstop action wrestling. Yeah, I was going to say, that's wrestling, right? Yeah. yeah, wow, yeah. So, you, so there was a, a wrestling theme. It was a choice li- a choice list-based uh, dialogue or race, wrestling game. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you would... It was essentially like about cutting promos, and then you'd be able to fight the other person based on uh, what your stats were like at the end of the conversation. <laughs> so it was a conversation-based wrestling. Yeah, it was like the coolest game. goddamn thing we did. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, a side note, but like, 
Is there any way to play any of these aside from just having an old phone that they're still downloaded on? I generally have no idea. Yeah. Like, uh, I tried to find Exile a long while back just to yeah. show it to a friend. Yeah. And, you know, these were all on, like, you know, old T-Mobile phones. Yeah. And old flip phones and stuff yeah. like that. You gotta, you gotta find somebody... You gotta go back to, the, to your contacts from that studio and find if anybody kept a flip phone with all of the with all of long tails games downloaded on it as this like artifact that, that would be rad if they did yeah yeah um i mean that's something that i always think about just in terms of like game preservation wise is like i remember when you know when we were working on minerva's den i was like really adamant that i wanted it to be on not just cause at first i think as a production thing they were like only going to put it out on console mm-hmm. and then you know i was like can we you know I'm not going to take credit for it, but I was at least one of the voices in the studio that was like, can we please get this on PC? Because I just know, you know, you, you if you have something that's like only on the Xbox 360 download store, they shut, they sunset that at some point, and now the only way to have this thing you made is to have a 360 that has it downloaded on it. And like, fortunately for us, over the years, it's been released on like physical collections and in the remaster and all that kind of stuff, and, and that's great, but like, when you're working on something like a mobile game that's only available on certain mobile download stores on certain hardware and like it's just gone if there's even, not like a PC emulation of it or something. Even at the time we thought about that stuff as just being disposable. You know, yeah. it was this is the project we're working on right now and they're gonna immediately move on to the next project. Yeah. This isn't a thing that we think is going to have like all these accolades or or, or whatever. It's right. just it's a piece of content that we've created and we're gonna move on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's I think that's a damn shame because yeah. we, we had some really, really interesting ideas there and also you know, some of the writers from that studio have gone on to do really, really cool stuff. Uh, Eric Marchesack, who worked on the the um, TNA game, he's well, he was up at uh, Square Enix working on uh, Deus Ex. Like, cool, yeah, fucking rad. Yeah, you know? Erica Rosby and Sarah Carbiner, they're on Rick and Morty now. Oh, really? It's, like, it's all these wow. rad people who are working on this really, really rad stuff. Yeah, and you know, you kind of have like this this chart of the history of their work yeah. in time and I mean there's a story like as, as a side note anyone who's listening to this if you work at uh, for I don't know Gamasucha or gamesindustry.biz or something there there is a this sounds like there's a crazy story to be written here <laughs> where you find what all these writers that worked at Longtail have gone on to do and then you find that one phone that has all the games on it <laughs> and do a write up of this crazy stuff that they were yeah. doing 10, 12 years ago because uh, like that that sounds really that's that's fascinating Thank that's you. really yeah. cool yeah um, so how long were you there for total? a couple of years it sounded like? Two? three years okay. uh, I was laid off in 2008, I believe, around Christmas time of 2008. Always that happens was, around Christmas time. Yeah. I guess it's right before the end of the calendar year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was, you know, we had mass layoffs at the studios. If you recall, 2008 was just a really, really rough time. Like, the economy had created at that point. Yeah. Our studio contracted a lot. Yeah, a ton of, like, mid-size and smaller studios had to, yeah, fold or downsize or get absorbed. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. So, so you were there... For a good amount of time, you you worked on it. Sounded like a lot, a lot of different. Like, how many projects do you think you worked on? Uh, ballpark, I think about four or five games. Okay, yeah. yeah. And it, 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 the way that our studio was kind of structured, which is the way a lot, I think, a lot of studios with writers are structured, is sometimes you have your hand in, in a thing, and you may not have your hand in it for the entire duration, right? But you've had your hand in it for a chunk of it, and that was yeah. what the, the way it was with a lot of projects that I worked on. Okay. So, I 
may have like written the first act of a thing and then just moved on to something else. Right. Uh, Exile was the thing that I worked on from beginning to end. So literally every word, like every yeah. string of text, every item description, everything in it was me, oddly awesome. enough. Yeah. So I was the only one willing to take on that crazy albatrossing thing. <laughs> well, that's, and that's something that can be fun, too. Like, I mean, I wrote item descriptions for Bioshock 2. You know, it's just fun to be like... Like, nobody aims at the can of peaches and actually presses the what's this button but if they do they're gonna know I wrote some lore (laughs) like I don't know I took it upon myself to be like you don't just open this thing and it says this can of peaches will restore some of your health it like has like a quote from the botanist from Bioshock 1 about you know like I don't know it's like you can have fun in that space and reward people when they do act when they're the 0.1% of people that actually look at the description of whatever this arbitrary thing is that you picked up I was going to ask like to to what degree were you kind of cognizant of I guess being able to flesh out the world a little bit more because this is something we were thinking about a lot in Mafia 3 like every single weapon in our game has like a little description for in the mobile store that's kind of informed by something that was going on with the world at the time or just some specifics about the weapon based on real weapons that kind of stuff right um, I don't know to to, to your end like what what was it about adding those item descriptions that was important to you what do you feel like it added to the game I mean I guess it's just one of those things where it's I, I, I think this extends forward to like anything that you work on or anything that I've worked on which is like there's a lot of stuff in any game that most players or some players are not going to encounter, but every... So, I mean, in a way, it's almost an extension of the idea that, you know, I heard, you know, thrown around working on Bioshock 2 that came from Bioshock 1 that was Greg Gobi from 2K at the time bringing this idea of just, like, say yes to the player to Bioshock 1 and being like, if the player thinks they should be able to pick up this thing with telekinesis, make it happen, and if you think, well, if I use, you know, my firepower, it should catch this on fire and that should spread to other things and, like, give them that thing that they're hoping for or expecting because I think that every time the player says, oh, I'm going to try this or I hope that this works, and it does, it maintains their connection to the game, right? And it's an invitation to a gauge. Right. Yeah, it's it's something that's saying like your input like what you put into this game is actually going to like you're going to get something out of that. And right. I think that that extends as far down as something like if I bother to look up the description of this object do I find out something interesting or funny or that's just like a little more than you had to put there or does it just say this can of peaches gives you health because then at that point it's an invitation to disengage right yeah. you're like well I'll never look at another one of these this is all very utilitarian so I'm just going to move on but if you look at you know the uh, the assault rifle in Mafia 3 and it says something about like that you know this was the most popular weapon used by the Viet Cong or you know whatever you're like oh wow weird well what are the other what's the shotgun going to say and you want to dig deeper into what's there right, right. Yeah. yeah yeah for sure um so okay so so you worked at Longtail for a few years and then you were laid off mm-hmm. and you were living in, in we're the in New York one, area we're in yeah, online time, yeah. online at the time. So at that point I mean I'm sure that you were like disappointed not to be able to work on on that stuff anymore and like that's how it goes but uh what what were what were your next steps from there like what were your considerations when you're like well now what am I going to do? Well, there was a lot of sitting around wallowing and, and being sad for, for, <laughs> right. for a little while. I mean, you got to do that for a little yeah. while. Yeah, you have to do that for a minute. Uh, 
I had, I'm trying to remember exactly how this happened, but I had a friend who was writing for a site called Twitch Film, which is now called Screen Anarchy, and okay. somehow or other we just got into conversation, and they're like, hey, do you want to cover the New York Asian Film Festival for us? And yeah. I just said yes to that. Yeah. It was an unpaid gig. Uh, 38-year-old me would never do this, but, uh, you know, 20-something me was willing to do it just because what else did I have hey, yeah. to do? Um, and I found that I really, really enjoyed talking about film. I really, really enjoyed talking about art in general. And, and that kind of led to me writing for Twitch for several years. And okay. uh, off of that, I, I, uh, you know, that's, uh, that same friend was able to recommend me to... Uh, the now shuttered MTV Geek, and mm. I started covering comics for them, and then uh, helped bring MTV Multiplayer back online after Tatilla left. Okay, it's like just kind of was this weird winding path of just writing about pop culture, writing yeah. about games, writing about film, writing about TV and novels, and okay, uh, just being able to talk about, and also being able to dis- We had that discussion earlier about you know what a psych degree did for me. I think writing about art did a lot more for me. It being able to talk about the things that I really appreciate and enjoyed yeah. and understand why I enjoy those things and understand why other people enjoy things things that I wouldn't necessarily dig yeah. um, feeling human connection to things and, and seeing stories the same stories being told over and over again yeah. seeing new stories coming up and, and uh, in this weird point where our fandom started getting more and more what's the word I'm looking for more and more entrenched and, and more okay. and more clearly defined yeah. like, uh, and that was kind of MTV Geeks for a minute like let's embrace fandom and let's kind of give them really really fun and, and, and positive stuff to enjoy about yeah. pop culture so you were so you were basically a, a, a critic and essayist for what for like a number of years yeah. after yeah uh, okay. and you know that didn't really pay the bills, so I was working at Microsoft for a little while, and right. I sort of gave the, the MTV stuff up uh, outside of, you know, the occasional writing up a thing that just seemed interesting or exciting to me. Right. And uh, it was kind of a, a really, really cool period of being able to talk about art on one side and being able to work on stuff on the other side. Yeah. You know, at that point, I moved on to uh, 343 Studios as, as Halo reach was out at that point yeah. four was in active development and okay. uh halo ce the 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 10th anniversary of, of halo was was in that launched when i was there if i recall correctly yeah and okay. it, it was just like a lot of halo going on yeah. all at once oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of a lot of masters chief yes. <laughs> surrounding you <laughs> um so okay so so you so you got into writing about art and pop culture and be involved with that for for a while, and that that overlapped with working on it Halo did. stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's really. I mean, that's kind of interesting and surprising. Does that mean that you were just like, like that that your like critical writing and and, and uh, writing about media was basically just like doing overtime on top of a full time job, or were you like kind pretty of like part time contracting? No, you were you were all the way there. Was, okay, you know, working nine ten hour days at three four three, and then later Microsoft Game Studios. While also, you know, going home and hammering out five or ten posts for for something else because I was just excited about it. I just yeah. wanted to talk about it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I, I feel like you know that that's something that I have only done a little bit of, but I do feel like there's like real value to not just 
playing or watching something and having thoughts about it, but actually having to structure those in a way that a reader can come to it and understand what point you're trying to make or what your perspective is. I think that that is incredibly valuable to, I think like you were saying, give yourself more of like an understanding of your own relationship to work that you encounter and how that speaks to like what you might do. Absolutely. And I think having a sense of self-awareness is, is incredibly healthy, you know, and, and a lot of that kind of comes from being able to understand what are some of your influences? Where are you coming from in your perspective on all of this? Yeah. And what kind of stuff are you consuming? Are you consuming too much of the same stuff? It's, it, it all sounds very, very dry, but at the same time, it's like, I'm excited about Game of Thrones and I'm going to consume all the Game of Thrones stuff I possibly can. That's, that's, that's cool. That's, yeah. that's a really cool way to be, but there's so much other... <laughs> I mean, you're phrasing that sounded a little... <laughs> A little bit. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> I love. There's it. a but. There's a but. <laughs> but there's space for other stuff, or there's yeah. there's there's kind of room for understanding. Well, George R. R. Martin isn't writing all this stuff in a vacuum. Like that. That's an incredibly terrible, terribly smart dude who's who's informing this from a lot of history. You know, it's the the uh, War of Oranges, if I recall correctly, mm. and you know, like uh, the, the Dothraki or the Mongols, and it, it's it's. It's history and it's other pop culture right. and, and it's all this other stuff driving these really really interesting stories and you kind of get this this doorway and all these other really cool stories that 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 are engaging and, and wonderful kind of like source material for you yeah. to draw on. Yeah. Well, and I think that also, you know, influences can be just things that you love, mm-hmm. you know, and they can be oh I love this movie and this book and this thing and I want to like put all of those into my work. But I think that influences can also and should also come from this this specific, like, having to write up not just that I love this movie, but why it works for me and find out what I focus on when I try to write that out. And finding, like, actually it's not just that that's a great movie, it's that there's this thing about it that resonates with me. And I kind of discovered that by trying to put into words my connection to it or stuff that I'm just like I really couldn't stand this show or something and not just be like oh I hated it but write it out and say like you know what the reason I had that reaction was because this thing felt wrong to me and that defines part of my ethos on like if I'm going to put something together that's antithetical to what where I'm coming from and I understand that more. Well, I feel like that period, you know, when I was writing for all those sites, is it also helped me be more critical about the things that I like. Yeah. You know, Toby exactly, Hooper, yeah. you know, Toby Hooper, rest in peace. Like my favorite film by Toby Hooper is Life Force. It is not his best <laughs> film. It is my favorite film. I saw that in seventy millimeter at the Castor Theater. <laughs> it is a gorgeous, weird, <laughs> fucked up, strange movie, and I love it beyond all reason. But I can also talk about why it might be a failure as a commercial product and why it might be a failure to mass audiences but why I embrace it and and that was, the, that was Space Vampires right mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that, that yeah. was the nude it, it was based on the novel The Space Vampires and it's uh, it's like two God. hours and some change long in the, the director's cut and uh, it's violent sci-fi with this weird fantasy movie score and Patrick yeah. Stewart exactly yeah, Patrick Stewart, Stewart shows up in like the back half of it and you're just like he's you like just, in a scene he's like what, what, what's going on yeah here? you're like you just look like mm-hmm. Jean-Luc Picard it's just 15 20 years earlier he's, he just he hit a point where he just stopped looking different he's never stopped aging <laughs> and apparently it was 1978 or whatever that was. No, no, it came out in 85 oh it was that 85, late wow yeah. okay yeah. 
But just to that greater point, like, yeah, yeah. Understand why you love your trash, and that's okay. Yeah. Austin Walker was, uh, you know, the the latest Waypoint episode. He and Patrick Klepek were talking about the new Taylor Swift song. I don't listen to her music, but I understand that people do love it. Understand, and they got. I've some, seen people talking about that single coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got some flack because they were talking on their previous podcast about why they didn't like it, and they they had this wonderful, uh, very lovely, and I, I really want people to go and listen to it. This wonderful conversation about being able to be critical about the things that you like, yeah. and being critical doesn't necessarily mean shitting on it yeah. it does mean you being able to talk about why you like a thing and being able to understand where your tastes come from right. uh, and sometimes that allows you to be the best evangelist for the thing that you yeah. like sometimes it just allows you to say ooh I really really like this and now I can seek out other stuff that's kind of like it right. I can understand I can, I can seek out stuff that might have inspired it versus just saying I like it or dislike it and create yeah. this binary whereby you know you're now defensive about your art because uh, you're defensive about somebody else's art and product because right. you like it it's well, and I think there's something that can be interesting about understanding why you like certain things that can help guard against um, the unexamined impulse to go certain directions with your own work. So, like, if you if you watch something and you're like, I love this thing, and you analyze it and you're like, oh, I love this thing just because it has, like, this trope in it that I always love because I'm a dumbass and I love this kind of character being in a thing and it makes me love it more than other people who don't have that exact same set of aesthetics would. And so I'm aware that just, like, if I then have the urge to, like, do that thing in my own work, it's not going to make anybody else except me be excited. Or, like, the other people that are, like, just like that yeah. thing. I think that knowing, like, this is something that I like for reasons, <laughs> and that's applicable. And this is something I actually have to be careful about, not just throwing in because it's, like, something that that hits me but isn't, more of like a, a has a broader purpose I think that can be really useful as well it, it, it's terribly it's also it stops you from limiting your work like if you just have a clear understanding let's just take me for example no one's gonna want to see my take on the horny bisexual space vampire story <laughs> a very narrow audience is gonna be there for that but if I want to lean into it if I want to embrace it if I want to tell that story I can just go all in with the understanding that it's going to just touch a certain audience yeah um Whereas if we're working on like a more mass market thing, then I have to kind of calibrate my expectations and I have to be able to talk about, I have to be able to find the human dimension that's going to connect with a lot more people. Right. You, you like, and, and I think that, yeah, there's, there's certainly room for vanity projects where you're just like, I'm just doing it. Yeah. But I think there's also ways to walk that line and say, I'm going to include stuff that I just like. Yeah. And it's fine for it to be there, but I I have to also know that the overall work needs a stronger foundation than that for right. for anyone who comes to it to be able to interface with this thing, for sure. So so okay. So you were you were doing the the online writing thing. You were writing essays about different uh, popular culture and and media and art. Um, and then you started working, yeah, at 343 at the same time. So you moved to Seattle from Long Island? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and uh, that was that was a big change. You know? Yeah. I was, I was alone. My, my partner was still uh, at Cornell. She'd moved up to Ithaca, okay. upstate New York. So yeah. we were literally on the far sides of the country from one yeah. another. Were you, was it like a long-distance relationship at yeah, that point? point? Okay, yeah. 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 And, um, and that's challenging no matter what. It was it was rough. But, yeah. you know, moving to a city where there's no sun for the chunks of the year. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, being from a sunshine state, it was kind of rough. It was right. kind of rough. Yeah, yeah. I still hold some beefs against Seattle. <laughs> oh, you're beefing with Seattle. Just still. Not the whole, not the people of Seattle. Yeah. Just its weather and the way that it killed my vitamin D. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I'm lucky because, yeah, I, uh, I also moved to Oregon or, you know, the Pacific Northwest yeah. from Florida. I was just fine with it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, no humidity? <laughs> Sun isn't blasting me like always. That's that seems pretty good actually. Um, but yeah, for for people that really kind of need that 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 vitamin D, uh, I I know that it can be it can be really hard. And it's it's also slightly colder and wetter up in Seattle even than it is in Portland. So it, it is. I think the benefit there is that I spent a lot more time indoors, and that allowed me a lot more time to just dig into writing and to okay. just. When when I you know when I'm sitting around writing an essay or whatever when I'm sitting around working on a project for three four three I was working on Waypoint their Waypoint Halo <laughs> right thing, not to get confused here yeah uh, and then working on some projects at Microsoft Game Studios like for the the family group as an editor okay like I had a lot more focus just because I wasn't wandering around doing things I wasn't yeah it was like this weird monastic period of just mm-hmm. being able to embrace the work that I was doing and yeah. Kind of, thankful for it slash hated a little bit yeah. yeah i mean i had a like my first design job in the industry i worked at timegate studios which is down in the houston area as well um and i similarly i moved there from san francisco and my now wife was still living back in san francisco she was going to ucsf um and i knew that it was like temporary because i was like okay i'm working on an expansion pack this project isn't gonna last forever i'm gonna ship it and then come back but during those six months in Houston, it was kind of the opposite. Where I'm, I lived in Houston for the worst six months of the year that you could, which I lived there from March to September. So like only the oh, hottest, most humid uh, part of the year. And I didn't have a car mm-hmm. out in the suburbs, yeah, you can't, you can't suburbs, suburbs of Houston, not even in the city. So like I spent a lot of time, like pretty much all my time, give or take in the like sad little one bedroom apartment I had or in the office that I was working in. And so I had that same kind of feeling of like, you know, when I'm not at work working on stuff, I'm in my apartment, I like used Netflix and gave myself a deep education in like film noir mm-hmm. history and just kind of dug into a bunch. Cause I, I took film, you know, in school, but it was, it wasn't my major or even my minor. So I only had so much, so much exposure, but I was sort of like, Oh yeah, these movies that I kind of got a taste of in school, I can go deep on like, these subgenres, these these historical parts of you know American and, and international film, and I played a lot of games that like I might not have otherwise. And just there is something about just being there for the work, and the rest of the time just being like I can just be here and immerse myself in media or writing or whatever. That it has a certain appeal to it in a way. Just that lack of of overhead you know you're just sort of like I'm here I guess I'll just spend my time on this it, that's it, all there is it sucks in the moment but I think there's something to be said for having time to just be a monk to just yeah. like you said just be focused and, and to at least for creative endeavors just be able to absorb a bunch of stuff and to be able to spend time on working on the thing yeah. because distractions come at you fast and easily mm-hmm. like yeah. I am you know yeah, it was a little. It was a bit less pervasive back in two thousand five and then two thousand eight, two thousand nine. But just the the easy access to streaming services yeah. and stuff like that. Like I and just I, constant social media updates that you can always yeah. just be refreshing. Yeah, I have a hard time imagining myself being as productive as I was then with all the distractions. Now, it's not to say that those things. It's their fault. 
it's my own sort of lack of resistance to them yeah. that's the problem. Yeah. So you were in Seattle. You were working on Halo stuff. Yeah. So were you doing like story, like writing stuff? Very little. Okay. Uh, so um, I was an editor on Waypoint. Okay. Uh, so it was like all the the videos going out. Uh, I would be editing those scripts and providing okay. feedback on that stuff, as well as like. Shoot, what was it? We, we had some like other minor marketing materials that were going out for DLC for Reach. Okay. And uh, then Halo 4 came along, and, and there was some development going on there, and I ended up being the technical writer just because oh, okay. I'm, I'm weird at weaseling my way onto <laughs> roles that I know very little about. So as a technical writer, were you like documenting like the development tools? Okay. Yep. Wow. Uh, from from like you know tail to snout, <laughs> and uh, it was really cool because I had kind of a crash course in oh. This is everything that it takes to get every, to, to get a game made because at yeah. Longtail it was just I'm just gonna type away like a moron and then send it off and somebody can tell me there are too many words here fix it. Yeah. Uh, whereas at three four three it was like oh okay this is a, a rudimentary understanding yeah. of how scripting works. And this That's is actually a really fascinating way to gain an understanding of that as as someone coming to it from writing. It is. I I, I kind of wish that there were a way as, as an internship for a would be game developer no matter what the role is that you want to do just to you know. 12, 13-year-olds, I'm talking way younger, yeah. come in and understand what te- technical documentation involves. Yeah. Like, just put a thing, to, you know, understand what it takes to put a thing together from an end, understand what the documentation is looking like. And some of the stuff is dense, and I, I had trouble, like, parsing it even after writing it out. Yeah. But I understood how to put it together in a, in a way that someone who, who for, for whom English wasn't a first language, they'd be able to look at it and say, okay, I understand how to use this tool that might yeah. be a little idiosyncratic or a little bit older. Right. And, uh, you know, in that way, I feel like I may have made myself valuable. And um, yeah. Armando, who was our narrative lead at, at, at 343 at the time when Halo 4 was in development, uh, he, he since moved on. I think he's at Black Tusk now, if I recall okay. correctly. Uh, or whatever. The Coalition is, is okay. what it's called now. Sure. Um, he seemed to to respect my hustle, and also I bugged him a million times. And <laughs> right. you know, during my last month or so there, he was like, "Well, just come poke around in some narrative stuff on four. You know, just look at this this opening area here and tell us what you think, and, and yeah. try to script in some interactions and tell us what sort of storytelling we'd want to do here." And yeah. um, that was around the time that they were kind of figuring out how they wanted to like place objects that had a little bit of narrative on them. You know, okay. have the the little hollows with, with a little bit of story. I don't remember if those made it into the game. Mm. Like, that was really cool, just seeing what sort of deliberate thought, deliberate thought process they had in place of, yeah. of like how to basically add more story, not just for the Master Chief, but also this intervening period between like the last war and the next war. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, the yeah, the whole like learning the dev tools by documenting them thing is interesting because I am grateful that I came up through like cert QA and then internal QA and then like junior level designer and then kind of built from there. But like being in QA, especially internal to a project has that similar value of not just like I'm testing things and, you know, like making a paycheck, but also you're like, Oh, so this is what the different people on the team do. This is what the process of actually like getting a game from an idea on to like being on screen actually involves before you have to be part of that. And that seems similarly like you're like, Oh, okay. So to get, yeah, like, a piece of environment art into the game, you start here and you have to do all this stuff, and then it ends up here, and that's really hard to see from the outside. And it's also, I think, incredibly useful in, in terms of understanding how those, those pieces interlock. Which, just kind of repeating what you're saying yeah, here. Yeah. But, like, you know, part of what I was doing was working on the, the concept art bar Bible with, um, with, with our art lead at the time, mm. and... Uh, Ken Scott, incredibly talented guy, worked on Doom and stuff like that. Mm. And like Ken was very, very deliberate about what his vision for the art for that game was going to be. And yeah. like, all the way down to, 
when we see a box in the world, it's going to have these kind of edges because the USMC likes to use these kind of boxes that aren't going to slide around on a spaceship. Yeah. And, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, that's like really, really exciting for me. It's like, uh, you know, I want to get this granular detail of, of, of filling out this world and, and, and having character to boxes, right. char- character for spaceships and, and, and an understanding and, and, and feeling for making this world feel lived in, feeling practical, but still allowing space for the fantasy to come in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about things from all those perspectives, just like a lot of story, even, you know, in a game can be about just like why things are the way they are, you know, and like having actually thought about why is this crate the way it is, not just because it's a video game crate and we want to make it look high tech, but like why this specific thing and talking to, you know, that, that coming from the world and the fiction of the world and everything like it all filters down but having that be part of the thought process I think is uh, it's always interesting to hear about it's the kind of thing that no no player is probably going to reverse engineer that but the fact that there's something unique that's there that's for a reason that is consistent I think comes across even if the player isn't going to be like, oh, right, well, that's because, you know, the USMC has these specific it's, processes that it uses or something. It, it's your can of peaches thing from earlier. It's, it's giving the player the sense that this entire world is deliberate. And I think yeah. those are the games that I appreciate most, where there's this sense that things were placed deliberately, this space was built out deliberately for me, the yeah. player, and that, that kind of just makes me want to explore it more. It makes yeah. me want to dig into it more because it feels real, it feels lived in. For sure. So did you go straight from Microsoft to 2K? Uh, no, there was actually a little gap there. Okay. Um, I was at Microsoft, and I took like a couple months break because uh, I was a contract worker at the time. Okay. Uh, and you know, uh, under kind of the arcane rules of the way contracts work in Seattle, you can only work for. Oh, shoot, I forgot exactly how long it was. In, Cal- in California, to, it was yeah. nine months on, three months off. That was That's how it, it was. Yeah, when it I was like well, you have to take a hundred day break, tester, yeah. and it's yeah. uh, kind of mortifying they like oh, I've got a really relationship with this team but now I have to stop yeah for, so especially know. if you're like deeply yeah. like you know like built into the team like yeah. me being a cert tester it's like whatever I'll be back to test some more games later but if you're actually like a part of that yeah whole project then yeah and totally. just I guess for your listeners like this is uh, a way to avoid you being classified as a full-time employee because if you're, you're there for a full year then you're considered full-time and you're kind of getting the same benefits so right so they yeah basically big corporations that that employ a lot of contractors you know they if they want to avoid the overhead of having to give people benefits and <laughs> all that kind of stuff yeah. and pay taxes uh, for that are based on full-time employment then it's like all right uh, go do something else yeah. for a little while and we'll hire you back afterwards but you know um yeah it's a strange it's one of those things that you know when you work with a lot of like contract workers there's sort of that thing where it's like oh i'm really hoping that i can get like upgraded into a full-time employee so i don't have to figure out what to do with three months of my year when i'm not getting paid like get some other job during that time or save up for it or whatever um but yeah i you know i had never really thought of it as being something as like you having that role also being in that same kind of like space. It was, it was a little demoralizing. space, yeah. Yeah, because I, uh, I'd actually begun starting work on the narrative stuff, but I had no idea whether or not Armando would want to bring me on as like a full-time narrative writer or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I had to leave. Yeah. And uh, he, he may not have. He may have just said, yeah, you're, you're really good as an, art, uh, an editor and really good as a technical writer. You may want to sustain that. But I would not, I, I wouldn't know because I only had, you know, a limited time that I could be there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, after that, I went back to 
writing online. You know, yeah. I, I moved to California, LA specifically, and I was writing for Nerdist and oh, yeah. back at MTV again, and uh, moved on to interviewing celebrities. <laughs> I've had a, a long, varied, and strange career. Yeah. yeah. Who Who are some celebrities that you got to interview? Was there anybody you were excited about? Uh, Lena Headey of, of Game of Thrones once said oh, that wow. I was very dapper, and I think that was the highlight of my year. <laughs> that was the nicest thing that ever wow. happened to me. Oh, congratulations. Uh, I mean, you are very dapper right now. Thank you. For, thank for you. viewers that uh, are not, or readers, listeners, yes. uh, who cannot see what I'm seeing right now, very uh, striking red uh, glasses uh, frames and a, a cardigan. It's a good look. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I, I try not to, to wear my dirtbag rider look every single day, <laughs> but I figured we had guests and I should probably pretty myself up a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so so yeah, so you, you got back into writing about media and, and doing interviews and stuff like that for a while. Um, did did you were you kind of like feeling things out at that point, or were you like I want to get back into game stuff? And I, you were looking. And I trying did to very much out. want to get back into games at okay. that point, but it was also just I needed to be more deliberate about where I was going to be. You know, okay. I, uh, I actually went down to LA for a gig that did not work out. I was there for like six weeks before getting laid off. Okay, and, and laid off in air quotes, but it was just like a terrible fit on yeah. both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I, I learned at that point like I. I want to continue writing for games, but I don't want to just be writing for games. I want to be at a studio that's doing something that I'm excited about, okay. and I want them to be excited about the work that I'm doing. Wow. And, yeah. um, you know, Bill Harms reached out. Uh, this would have been in the middle of 2014, and we had kind of a, a, an early conversation about, he was just, you know, here, here, here's the tease for what, what it is that we're working on, and we really like your writing sample. Uh, we're writing about the black mob in the 1960s, and I was like, Go on, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> please just continue talking because I want to hear everything that you have to say. And, yeah, and um, you know, we, we just have further discussions about what what the project entailed, and I'm yeah. just incredibly excited uh, about Mafia Three. And I didn't have that deep well of familiarity with the Mafia franchise at that point. Yeah, but just everything they described about it, and everything that I'd read up to that point about the sort of fandom surrounding Mafia Two and the original Mafia uh, was incredible. Yeah. And to be able to take that and, and give it a black lead, and to be able to take yeah. that and put it into a different period. Um, you know, how often do you see stories about the mob of the 1960s? It's, it's very rare. Yeah, well, and I mean, especially not like the the classic like Italian mob, the New York right. mob, or like, you know, the, the mob going out to Vegas, you know, yeah. like uh, we, we've seen those kind of uh, I guess archetypal mm-hmm. mob stories but yeah Mafia 3 seemed like a totally different perspective on what organized crime means and what playing a role in that world means and just that whole lens was I think really surprising in a cool way when they revealed it. it's like okay we're not gonna do any of the things you expect right. you know this is our this is a this is a what I think felt like a really legitimately unique interpretation Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And, and so much of that, some of that stuff was kind of in place before I even came on board. Like, you you could tell in those early conversations with Bill and with Hayden Blackman, uh, you know, our steer lead, like, there had been a lot of discussion in advance about what kind of story they wanted to tell, what kind of world they wanted to create, and, and basically what kind of feelings they wanted to evoke in the player. And yeah. I, I think I appreciated being able to come onto a team that was that was dedicated to, to telling Lincoln's story. Like yeah. Lincoln was very alive to us for, yeah. for the, the years that I was working on this project. And yeah. So, so you, um, 
So you moved from LA to the Bay Area for this. Yes. And when what what year was that or when was that? 2014. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good that's a solid like 3 years ago now. Um, were you on from like the very early days of the production or what state was the game in when you started? Uh, there were things were kind of in full swing at that point, you know. Okay. We were we were starting to get stuff into the world. Uh, Lincoln Story had more or less sort of been nailed down yeah. and, and plus like, the, the story arc was like yeah. kind of like blocked in pretty but, solidly and stuff but we basically had to fill that world in you know we yeah. knew what where Lincoln was going to be at the beginning we knew where he was going to be at the end and mm-hmm. we knew that he was going to be fucking up some some Italian mobsters real serious lives <laughs> right, yeah. throughout the course of it but we needed to have a sense of like who those heavies were you know yeah. we knew generally who Sal was going to be and then sure. I, you know, I can go back and look at all those story documents like there were a lot of there were a lot of bios for all these characters. We just need to figure out like how to plug them in, and, yeah. and exactly at what point we're going to encounter them, and what those interlocking relationships are. Going how to much? Like. Uh, how many of the, or how how much would you say of the like, kind of like set piece moments were were established when you came in? Like, because I mean, okay, so uh, for for listeners who are not super familiar with Mafia Three, um, yeah, it takes place in an alternate New Orleans in. 1968 yeah um so uh you play as uh, an ex serviceman who had been drafted into vietnam or he volunteered he volunteered yeah. right um and comes back and is trying to make his way in new bordeaux is the name of the city right correct after after coming back from the war and having like had some trauma and, and you know the the kind of you know he wears his uh, like military jacket you know through the whole game um, and it's it's about basically his not his not his sorry so remind me it's not his actual physical family it's basically the community that it's, it's he his, grew up in it's his adoptive family right uh, Sammy took uh, Lincoln on Lincoln was an orphan who grew right. up in a nearby orphanage uh, he was initially raised by Father James uh, right Ballard who was a priest uh, and you know when Lincoln got into a little bit of trouble he ended up living with Sammy who was a local crime boss okay. uh, working underneath the Italian mob right and Sammy essentially treated Lincoln like his son you yeah. know his giant tough son who was yeah. able to, to do some gangster stuff for him yeah. but he still treated him like his son along, alongside his, yeah. his biological son Ellis yeah so so Lincoln comes back from the war and he's trying to make his way in the city and he's yeah kind of gets back into the local or, I mean you call it I mean organized crime but it feels much more it, it, feel, it feels smaller scale and much more like it, it's not organized crime the way I think of it is like the mafia with capos and you know it's more like the, Sammy, Sammy the underside a, yeah. of society and like the illegal business that that goes on in new bordeaux right sammy is essentially like the numbers runner and you know he, he runs numbers in, in his corner of the city and you know the, the sort of low-level crime he's kind of seen almost as like that that community leader yeah who's got feet in both, yeah. both worlds it feels more like you know i i guess my my feeling about the group that uh, you know the the that Lincoln is part of before things really you know ramp up, up. Um, is more like hey we're smuggling things mm-hmm. that then we're going to sell on the black market right. but not like we're taking protection money and you know extorting people and stuff like it feels a little bit more of just like the under the table side of that city remaining functional versus yeah. like we're going to go out there and like 
really fuck with everybody and kind of try to take money from all the shopkeeps in town just so they can stay open and not get their windows broken, you know, that kind of it's, stuff. It's that parallel story of, like, kind of crime and poverty that, that you don't hear about quite as often. It's it's crime. It's, crime it's illegal. Law. Yeah, it's, it's stuff that's yeah. illegal in the, the, the that sense. But you kind of imagine Sammy is the dude who's helping connect someone who needs a car to get to work out on a day-to-day right. basis. Yeah. He's not necessarily doing it out of altruism, right. but he is that guy in the community who is responsible for that sort and, of thing. And he's maybe finding a way to, like, make the stuff people need fall off a truck <laughs> so <laughs> that he can sell it to them. Yeah. But it's, yeah. So, so Lincoln is kind of part of that world, and then they get in with the actual, like, more established mob and basically get double-crossed at the beginning of the game. And the game is about you as Lincoln rebuilding from these disparate elements that are in the city to kind of take back the city from the the higher level, like, Italian mob that had come in and wiped out a bunch of people that you were relying on. Essentially, yeah. It's more he's trying to dismantle everything that Sal Marcano, who is the Italian mob boss in charge of all crime in New Bordeaux, has built... Um, it was a very deliberate decision to say we're not just going to go and kill Sal because right. once you do that, that's done and over with. You want to make him hurt as bad as Lincoln was hurt, yeah. and you um, want to you want to break down all of the 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 support structure that allow him to continue operating. Correct. Yeah, yeah. because you know I, I'm sure that you could look at it as if you just. You know, if Lincoln was just like, I'm going to use my you know special you know my spec op skills mm-hmm. to like sneak in and kill the the one bad guy, all of that structure is still there. Somebody could just step in and take his place, and right. nothing would change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know what what I was so having established that something I was going to ask about was I feel like there is a very like wanted it one. So there's a number of influences, I feel like, in the fiction and the writing and the the setting of this game. Some of it is classic, you know, mob movies. Some of it is, I think, kind of, you know, post-Vietnam War films like Apocalypse Now or, or, you know, Full Metal Jacket that kind of have a a darker perspective on, you know, coming back from the war, being in in that war. some of it, I think, is very influenced by like exploitation films and um, kind of grindhouse films. And there's sort of something that really struck me within the game. And I think there's a lot of different things to talk about, but that jump to mind are as you go through, you are taking down these different. Um, the, the uh, of yeah, 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 exactly. Like the the people that are running different sections of the city or different um, um, rackets in the city, and. You know, Lincoln is a character that is driven by revenge and that is kind of um, in a part of society, you know, that is, I, I guess, has a lot of different pressures on it that he's reacting to through his violence, basically. And there are some moments where when you take out some of these guys, there are some very kind of splashy, almost, I guess... Um, I know there, there, there's some imagery when you take out some of these bad guys that is above and beyond what you normally see, right? Like there's like I, if there's a guy that you know gets like crucified and set on fire, yes. right? Let's, let's be clear here: he's a Klansman that's that gets right. crucified and set on fire. Exactly, that was a very deliberate decision. Pre- precisely, yeah. um, and I feel like you know when you were working on this, how much of if you, it, I, I, I feel like you you and the writing team and the team in general were able to 
take a lot of the base premise of the game, which includes the time period, uh, you know, the race of the different characters, all the cultural surroundings of the South at that time, and lean into what you did with that imagery in a way that not every dev team would have. Right. Uh, well, I, I think that we embrace the idea that this is a game set in 1968, and uh, whatever choice that you make in game development is, is a choice. Like, if you, if you decide it's going to be a white dude who's, who's going on a blazing path of revenge, that is a choice, and that is a political choice that yeah. you made. We made the choice that Lincoln's going to be a black guy in 1968, Within the framework of saying we want to tell the best rip roaring story that we possibly can with yeah. the story, uh, with the character who we feel we, we can tell it authentically with, yeah. and um, you, you kind of describe like those exploitation and grindhouse grindhouse experiences, like when you saw an exploitation movie, usually in the the seventies and at the late seventies or thereabouts, in the late sixties, uh, many times those films were directed by white filmmakers, yeah. but they were populated by black casts who right. felt like. They were getting to see, giving audiences like these outsized versions of, of black men and women yeah. that you normally don't get to see in pop culture. It wasn't, you know, they weren't second to or other than in the story. They were out front. They were the lead. Like uh, Richard Roundtree, Pam Greer, you know, these beautiful, beautiful black folks just getting to be beautiful and getting to be bad. Yeah. Um, well, and I wrote, you know, when when I was talking about watching a lot of like film noir mm-hmm. in. When I was uh, uh, cloistered in in Texas, I also watched, uh, you know, kind of did my due diligence on like black exploitation and exploitation movies generally. And I remember uh, I watched Coffee, which is a Pam Greer movie, and like very, you know, like yeah. mid seventies, very, uh, you know, like aware of race yeah. is like an understatement to a massive degree. But I just remember the the ending of that movie is, you know, Pam Grier shows up at, I don't remember the entire story, but there's, like, the guy who mm-hmm. is, like, her love interest, but also the bad guy, and she, like, shows up at his house, and she has, like, a shotgun, and she's like, I'm gonna fuck this guy up. And he comes out, and she starts to have a change of heart, and he's like, you know, baby, forgive me, you know, whatever. And then a white woman comes out of his bedroom, and she just, like, and just, like, blasts him. And, like, that kind of just total forthrightness about, mm-hmm. like... The, the cultural conflicts there are something that I think we're used to seeing as a culture in things that you associate with more like underground film mm-hmm. like that like that that wasn't a scene in a big Hollywood uh, production right and I feel like that's something that's an interesting tension when you're working on games especially big commercial games where you're like okay this game is supposed to have an audience of millions and it's costing millions and like I imagine, much like working on the Bioshock series and being able to actually get to talk about like some social and cultural issues in a way that a lot of games don't have access to, that it must have been exciting or maybe almost intimidating to be able to say, like, we're not going to have to shy away from what we're really talking about in this game on this big of a production in this kind of context. It was fairly early in the interview process with Bill that I think he kind of leaned into and said, you know, this is something that we want to embrace. This is something we want to do. Yeah. Uh, again, with always the caveats, we want to tell the best possible story. We want to tell the most fun story, which is usually kind of politics are a part of it, but politics are also underneath. What The, the, the game is still right. the game. Uh, which is kind of my rambling way of saying, like, I, I was excited to be able to tell the story. I was yeah. excited to be able to 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 bring a, a perspective of, of you know blackness in the '60s, even though I didn't live during that period. Right. This is these are stories that that 
relatives have told me. These are stories that I've read about. These, this is the history that, that my people have lived with. Yeah. And being able to see the reflection in the game is just fucking crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, like, those early days when you first were like, oh, well, I'm going to, like, when you kind of realize, like, oh, this is a project I'm going to be working on. Yeah. Like, what was that like? Did you think really deliberately about, like, well, okay, then here's what I want to do in this role or like specific things that you wanted to draw from or like get into the game you know when you're a baby dev on a team you, it's less here's what I want to do right. it's more what can I do right what are they going to let me get away with on yeah. some of them <laughs> yeah and uh, they're relatively open like we had an understanding that Lincoln isn't going to be a guy who's going to you know turn at the camera and deliver a speech but he's he's experienced some shit yeah uh, and we wanted to figure well, out well in fact he's almost the opposite of the guy who's going to give a speech yeah. he's like very, he he's someone who's been through trauma and I think is more like inward focused it's because all buttoned of that. down but yeah. you know we wanted to find room for him to talk talk about his perspective you know talk about the horrible shit that's happened to him yeah. not only just in terms of the war not only just in terms of like being involved in the crime in New Bordeaux but also as being you know a, a, a six foot tall black dude with an imposing figure in a city full of white people who may not think that they can be safe around him right yeah and then using that to his advantage like we we call on that in the story, and I think that's that's one of my favorite moments in the game. Like Cassandra says to him, "What what do you think is going to happen when this city hears about this big black dude going around shooting someone? They're going to probably shoot the first black person that they see." Yeah. And this is Cassandra basically trying to argue for getting your assistance, getting guns into the hands of other right. black members of the yeah. community. Uh, and it's it's that kind of stuff that we 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 love sort of poking at, you know. What is the cost of what what it is that Lincoln is doing, right. and and also sort of where his where is his head at on right. it? Well, and it's a big it's a big part of the game, both in the story, like in the scripted scenes, but also, and I mean, this has been talked about, you know, in in articles and and stuff, but also systemically, the civilians' reactions to you right. in different parts of town, and like sort of the interesting. I think uh, tension between even as as a player and as kind of a, a, a figure in this crime world, you're like gaining power and taking over territory. Like it doesn't matter that you just took over downtown; you still walk down the street and like you're the white black. ladies are, yeah. you know, like making comments under their breath. And that's something again that is sort of like that being part of a game and not as like a tongue in cheek thing or a throwaway thing, but as part of your identity as a player and again not just when you're watching a cutscene but like when you're being the player just like walking around is the super fascinating aspect of an experience like this that you know you, I, I don't think that we've really gotten to see before it's, it's something that I hope we can kind of exploit in whatever it is that we work on next like this idea of, of putting you in the player shoe, in the player character's shoes yeah. uh, and having the world react to you based on your social status like you usually only see stuff like this in fantasy where they want to make you an elf or some shit and talk about right. and talk about race in those terms. Yeah. Versus, well, I'm a black guy in the city and someone's going to talk shit at me. Well, I guess I can shoot him, but then I'm going to have a million billion because our yeah. cops, we very deliberately made our cops pretty punishing in yeah. this game. Yeah. And so you want to just keep walking. Yeah. And, you know, that's not going to give your, your average non, you know, non-black player that full breadth and depth of experience of being, being black and walking down the street. Yeah. But we at least wanted to try to convey some some flavor of it and yeah. that's it's this constant sense of stress and this constant sense of eyes being on you at all times right. it's this very deliberate thing that our, our designers came up with of 
the cops always have attention on you, even if you're not committing crime. And that's, right. we didn't make it to the degree where you don't feel like you can drive or move or anything right. like that. But it's still this sense of, oh, I am always being observed. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a thing that weighs on you. It's a thing that's that's very, very stressful. Yeah. So within your role in the development of the game, um, you were a senior writer on the game. So what were you most responsible for or what were you focusing on over the course of development in the actual production? It actually varied because we carved up so much of the game between the three of us. Okay. Uh, you know, Bill was was out there, you know, writing cinematics, basically basically breaking Lincoln's world and, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, directing, you know, Ed and I, Ed Fowler, the other writer okay. on the game. Um, we took on some of the districts and we, we kind of divvied up the, the districts between the three of us yeah. and owned some characters and tried to figure out what those relationships were like with Lincoln. Yeah. We broke up the... And again, this is all kind of a nebulous thing because you've got three writers and we're just doing all the work. Right, all yeah. <laughs> and so that's like systemic dialogue and that's that's system text, that's UI text, that's writing mission uh, mission text, that's right. writing mission VO and um, just basically trying to fill out that experience. I think one of the things that I was most proud of is I got to spend a lot more time with Vito and I got to spend a lot more time with his his lieutenant Alma and, and okay. I got to spend a lot of time with uh, Donovan in the main game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Donovan was a great character. I folks, mean, I, folks love Donovan. Yeah. Well, and I think that some like he's such a shitbag, mm-hmm. and he knows it. Yeah. And he's driven by his own. So he's a son of a bitch. Right. I, I, I forgot exactly where this rationale comes from, but it was uh, around the time of um, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, and there's like a moment where a uh, character says to Royal, "I always thought of you in a- as an asshole," and he says, "Well, I always thought of myself as more of a son of a bitch." <laughs> Donovan knows what he is, yeah. and that makes him more of a son of a bitch. Right. And I think that was kind of fun to write. Like, he... Well, and he's a character that you can tell that he's only, like, you can tell that he's just using Lincoln. Well, that, that, and, that, that was a tricky balance for us. We wanted yeah. to be clear that he, he does have love for Lincoln, but he's still but doing it. also he's that, still right? doing his own yeah, shit. Yeah, exactly. It's like, he's, he's 100% mm-hmm. using Lincoln for his own means, but also, he clearly likes him and yeah. feels like he has a kinship with him. And also, the thing that I think is important about it is Lincoln is totally aware of it. Yeah. And he's like, me being used for this guy is for what this guy is trying to get done yeah. helps me get that done Absolutely. and I'm being in yeah. a way very utilitarian about it but also within that they're on the same wavelength and right. they kind of like each other in spite of everything else that surrounds it we, we really wanted to, to, to play up the kind of friendship between the two of them the, these, these two guys have seen some shit together and he can yeah. trust he can trust Donovan as far as he knows what kind of man Donovan is and right. Donovan is a, is a patriot which you know all the toxicity that's kind of tied up into that, and he will do whatever horrible thing it right. takes to, to to do what he feels is right for the country. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean it's the it's one of those interesting uh, character dynamics where yeah. basically they're the inverse of each other. Yeah, but they still lead to the same place. Right, um, where it's like he is the anything for this country guy, but also by any means necessary. Right. right? Like he, yeah. Donovan, you know, he almost sort of sees Lincoln as not going far enough. He's like, burn the whole thing down. Yeah. Burn it all down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I thought that um, that Vito and Alma were really interesting characters Thank as well. You. I definitely did all of Vito's side missions. Um, that was mainly because they were the ones where you actually just got to go waste on guys instead of like driving a truck a really long distance. Um, but but it was always... I think that those characters had clear motivations that felt um, 
satisfying to engage with, right? Like, I mean, it's some of it is just uh, like I don't know how much you um, got to be involved with sort of the the spec for who those characters needed to be or what their missions needed to be or whatever. But you know, when you have somebody who's like, I'm. I got kicked down here, and there are these guys that are around the city who, if they find out where I am, I'm fucked. Yeah. So go take them out. And then each of those guys can have a little backstory, and you can have that hint of him talking about what his relationship was before he went on the run and went into hiding. You know, all that kind of stuff is, like, that seems like it must have been fun to be able to expand on without it being the main focus of the game. It was, and it was also horrifying, because yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there are a lot of people who love Vito Scaletta, and we wanted to do right by him, you know? Yeah. There was a lot of agonizing on, you know, what story do we want to tell about Joe, and what yeah. story do we want to tell about in, in this space, because we don't want to disrespect that relationship. Yeah. We're handed somebody else's story, and we want to be able to, to own that in a way that, that, that feels like it did justice to it yeah uh so that was a little scary yeah that was a little scary but it was also it was it was aside from people who have that deep investment it was pretty buried right like it was it was an aspect but i feel like you also got to kind of let that character live as his alter ego as well yes yeah i mean he you know you you just want to engage with Vito as one of your uh lieutenants as you take over the city and you don't want to do any of the side missions you can absolutely do that you just kind of get a sense of what the flavor of his personality is he sees this kid doing some fucked up shit and that's going to get him a seat at the table cool yeah uh kind of the same goes for burke and and cassandra and then ed fowler was responsible for those two characters primarily and then he he was able to find so Vito. I think it was easier to find kind of an entry point and what makes this guy likable. Yeah. He's the guy we already know, and he's also just sort of a he's an incredibly loyal dude. Like yeah. unless unless he senses you're gonna you're gonna fuck him, he is going to be he's gonna have your back. Right. Whereas Cassandra and Vito are a little trickier. Like uh, v, I'm sorry, Cassandra and Burke. Burke, yeah. Because uh, they they feel like they they kind of don't trust you, or or they're they're just they, looking for that. They don't. and They both also very much have their own agendas. Right. And, uh, just credit to Ed and Bill for, you know, uh, Cassandra, I think, was around before Ed came along, and Ed sort of honed that character into someone who you understand her from point A to point B, and you understand her motivations, and even, yeah. if, you don't, even if you don't necessarily empathize with lack of liberation, and I don't know what's wrong with you that you don't, <laughs> uh, you, uh, you, you get where she's coming from right. and why she's motivated to do what she does yeah. and we kind of play her as mysterious initially but as she's willing to peel back some of the layers and, and let you know what's driving her I'm like okay this is a bad bad woman and she's yeah. going to do whatever it takes to protect the black community and yeah. the same goes for Burke like Burke is this sort of whirling dervish of chaos and, and at the same time he's motivated by family in a way yeah. that is surprising to people and we should probably say spoilers like thirty minutes ago, <laughs> yeah. For, so, for the for, yeah. for the for a year old game, right? Yeah. If uh, I mean, we haven't given that much away, yeah. but to be fair, you should play Mafia Three, and if you haven't, we'll probably talk some more about specific yeah. plot points and stuff. Um, but that's kind. I mean, that's really true. all of tone control stuff. Kind of assumes you've yeah. played <laughs> played a thing or don't aren't, aren't worried about that. But um, I mean, I thought that something that was interesting about um, putting. I thought there were interesting ways that uh, the player was able to reinforce their role as Lincoln in the in the game through, you know, like choices like which uh, lieutenant you're going to give territory to or whatever, but also um, systemically, 
because like like you're saying you know it's like the systems react to you yeah. you know like you always have the the police attention or civilians will say stuff when when you're walking around but also in the game's options it's kind of weird that this is the way that it works, but it's fine. Uh, was that you could go into the options and toggle whether you did lethal or non-lethal takedowns. Um, and so I always had non-lethal takedowns on just because I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to shoot a bunch of dudes, but I don't need to just need to be like stabbing every... Like, I can yeah. knock a dude out. It's fine. Um, which meant that, A, I don't remember if this even would have affected this. This might... This probably is always true. But I just remember there were at least... There, there were some times where you would be walking down the street... And somebody would say something, and I would just, like, turn around and just, like, judo slam them into the ground and then keep walking. It was, like, very satisfying I mean, I in, like, with, a... If, if it was a civilian, a civilian it's, it's I think you probably never be... kill them. Yeah. yeah. But, like, the, there was, on some level, I feel like, that kind of wish fulfillment kind of thing where you can be, like, all right, if this was reality, I couldn't even just, like, deck that guy that said that thing. But right now I can, yeah. and, I, and it's, it's, like, not illegal enough that I can get away with it. And you have that satisfaction, I feel like, that most people in any walk of life don't have. Just being able to say, like, if I could, this is exactly what I would do, and then do it. And there's something that is, like, as much as I think it's valuable and important to represent the the way that the world actually is, there's also something that seems like it has value to it of being able to say, like, you know what, if I'm Lincoln Clay, I'm not just going to take that exactly it goes all the way back what you were talking about with with coffee it's being i feel like everyone deserves their power fantasy and and, you know lincoln clay is the power fantasy for for black folks you know this this idea of i can react to this world this this very fucked up environment uh lincoln is much more brutal than probably anyone would ever want to be yeah but you can engage with it to the degree that you want. well and that was the that was the same thing where like as soon as the game was like, you can go into the options and turn on non-lethal. I was like, all right, I'm going to sneak. I'm going to choke guys out. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as, as soon as they were like, now the faction you're fighting is a bunch of KKK dudes. I was like, options, lethal, yes. stab them all. <laughs> Which is super satisfying mm-hmm. to be able to just... It has no mechanical impact whatsoever. It's purely player expression. But it's like, all right, these guys, they're not getting back up. It is like a super satisfying thing to be able to to make part of how you inhabit that, that character. And then that's interesting that you say that, because I think when people kind of engage with Lincoln, it's the degree to which, which they're, they're sort of leaning into Lincoln as the sort of brutal fucking angel of death for, for the Italian mob in this city and the clan. Like, when you play it non-lethally, you're just, you know, knocking out some, some jobbers who are, you know, just doing the 9-to-5, knocking over some trucks and stuff. Right. But when you go out against the, the Southern Union... There's this maybe kind of switch that turns off in your brain. It's like, well, yeah, these guys are doing some fucked up stuff, so yeah. I'm going to do some fucked up stuff to them. Yeah, here we and go. <laughs> it's, interesting to, it's interesting to get that that sort of divide. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, you know, the, it, it was a really big game, and it did have a big audience. Like, wh- what was, from your perspective, what was the public reaction like? Did you hear a lot from people who either felt strongly one way or the other about like the racial politics of the game and what was on screen? Uh, I, I wish I could lie and say, you know, I tried not to pay... Because initially I did. I tried not to pay attention to much of it. But it does seem like there was a pretty stark divide. Like, a lot of black critics, a lot of uh, POC critics embraced it and said, hey, it's really interesting to see this in this space. And I, I did find that there were a few white critics who were uncomfortable with it in a way, or they felt like it might have been exploitative. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
exploitative, like yeah, or, or they felt like it was pandering in a certain way. Okay. Um, right. I have no specifics here. Sure, it's sure. Just, it was just more. Well, because I like in my head, I was like exploiting who, but you just you just mean like kind of like it, it, uh, it's, it's language for its own sake, and, right? You know, I yeah, can yeah. I can talk about our motivations all I want to. Their reaction was the reaction that they had. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what, what? What our attempt was was to ground the world in a in, in, sorry ground the world in a way that felt like Lincoln was experiencing the kind of language that he would experience. And, yeah. Um, you know, from talking to family members, from watching documentaries from the time, from yeah. reading articles from the time, you're gonna have people saying some fucked up shit to you just yeah. while you're walking down the street as a black person in the 1960s. And we did not want to be inauthentic of that. We wanted right. to try to convey that as much as we could. We also didn't want to be abusive with it. We yeah. didn't want to... Well, because at some point, you're just like putting someone in a situation where they're just constantly being bombarded with... Then, you then know, we're punishing like, the player. Right. And yeah. and obviously, yeah. And that seems like one of the things that would be hard as well, is like you want to... I think it's harder with a lot of game stuff where you're like, if you want to do anything difficult, yeah. like difficult to live through or whatever, it's like, on the one hand... Presenting that authentically has inherent value. On the other hand, the player has to still want to actually play it. <laughs> and, like, that's hard, right? And it must have been hard for trying to figure out what that balance is between language and imagery and everything in a game like Mafia 3. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want to make, like, a, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean scale version of racism. We didn't right. want to just, like, here's a wild ride to racism, and now you can kind of disengage. No, it's there like, was that one part of the game that was basically the idea. The riverboat? Yeah, well, no, I was thinking the uh, when you literally go through the like, oh, theme the, park uh, area and you're, like, in the, the, the swamp. The, the Dixie, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, but that was... that's. That's very. That's an intentional. That was more of a werewolf like, thing, right? Fair uh, enough. Yeah, no. It, I, I, I think one of the things we were very, very cognizant of from the very beginning is just trying to make sure that this didn't feel like an experience where, again, I can't come back to the word, the idea of punishing the player. Yeah. So if you're walking along the street and everywhere you go, there's either a mobster or a civilian, you know, fucking dropping a hard end on you. Yeah. Then you're gonna you're gonna feel like the game is trying to push you away. Right. What we instead wanted to do was make you feel like you were swimming through this world. And occasionally you're going to experience it, and you're like, oh, that's fucked up. Or you listen to radio programming that feels like right. it's, it's calling on that language, or imagery that's calling on that, that, that history, and it's, oh, this is what this experience was like. We couldn't do a one-to-one. Yeah. That would be very, very difficult to do, and I also think it might be harder on most players. Yeah. Um, well, and you would also be in a totally different role, right? Yeah. Like, it, like you, aren't, you aren't both... Because you are living a mechanical power fantasy on some level, because it's yeah. at any point you can pull out a shotgun if you want, yeah. it, it's sort of, I think that's another way that you have to kind of walk that, that line, because the, the more authentic version would just be people who have no recourse, yeah. and you can't be the player and also have no recourse in a situation like that, and so that balance is like its own thing. And right? there, there's also just something, and I don't know if I was cognizant of it at the time, or if we as a team were cognizant of the time, but just something that I feel like kind of ended up happening we didn't um we didn't try to like pull back this scab on black pain like which, which right. is a thing that often happens like you know the stories that 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 do really really well involving black characters are usually one about slavery usually yeah. ones about just bad things happening to black people in their lives just being misery yeah and lincoln has some something fucked up that happens to him at the very beginning of the story but then we give him agency and he's able to react to the story yeah and we didn't want to make this a game where lincoln is constantly suffering yeah that's one it's not fun two as a black gamer i don't want to experience that because that's not really for me that's somebody else's misery tourism right yeah 
Yeah. So, I mean, end of the day, how do you feel about how Lincoln and, and the story of the game and, and the game in general turned out like as a, as a finished piece? I mean, I imagine that going into it, there's a lot of like, what's this going to, you know, like, is this what we're doing? What's yeah. this going to be? But now you're on the other side of it. I feel like we set out to do just about everything that we wanted to do. You know, it's no game that you finish is going to be perfect. It's never going to be 100% of what you wanted to attempt. But yeah. uh, I feel like Lincoln resonated with people and the city that we created resonated with people. And yeah. I, I fucking, I was really, really happy to see people excited about the game that we made, particularly like gamers of color. And this is, yeah. this is not to like negate the experience or enjoyment of other gamers, no. but just, just like, well, I mean, to, to know black gamers like were really, really excited right. about this in a way that they might not have been excited about another lead is is tremendous to me. Well, you, I mean, you heard from people who felt like they saw themselves yeah. represented in something, right? And you know, we had the, I, I, I think that I have a similar reaction with Gone Home, where it's like we made the game for anyone to enjoy and to like connect with those characters. But then when we heard from people who were like. I never thought I'd see a character like myself, like a queer woman, as the main character of a game. Or this was, this reminded me so much of the experience of my sibling or this person that I knew. And like, there's, there's, like, you want for the entire audience to be excited about the work, but when you can also say, and you're someone who doesn't usually get to see a reflection of yourself in this kind of role, in this kind of experience then that's like I think additionally exciting I, I don't know if it's going to come off as egotistical for me to say this but it felt like being seen as, as a writer as a developer and like again this is a collaborative effort between not just the writing team but also the designers and this team the world builders in this team it felt like the thing that we attempted to do was seen and it was appreciated and I, I don't know I did uh I, I was talking to the to to uh, Khalif from from Spawn on Me and yeah. he was describing his experience with the game and Tiny to Pass uh, from from many diverse games. Like she was describing her experience with the game, and these are both both black critics, black black writers of about games. And you know, I in the moment was getting like a little choked up because they were describing an experience with the game that I otherwise would not be able to have because I've been mired in it for the last few right. years. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh god, this resonated with you, and you felt something about this. You enjoyed this, and and it 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 made you feel powerful it made you feel empowered it made you feel something for Lincoln Clay yeah. and I don't know that's I feel strongly about it now like it, it's hard to articulate how that that that, that yeah. feels but you, it seems like you you felt that as well like you felt like you were seen from the stories that you were telling with Gone Home yeah I mean just you know like I'm interested in character in, in stories about a lot of different kinds of characters mm-hmm. and I'm interested in putting stuff out there that people feel like they can't get somewhere else and just you know being able to know that in whatever form that someone that that someone can feel more like like you said like they're being seen right. because like this this character or this you know moment or this storyline is in this game and that means they're not the only person right who has been in that situation or who you know has like shared that experience there's you know somebody else out there that you know, is is there on screen in front of them. And I think that that's something that, you know, like, I, as a totally classic, generic, bearded, white guy game developer, have plenty of options just to see some white people around, and, like, that's fine, but I'm interested in 
games that talk about different kinds of people, both because that's interesting to me as a consumer of media, but also because I know that that means that there's stuff out there for other people too, yeah. <laughs> which and is it, just kind of cool. Because like I've got plenty. <laughs> and you know, what? Get, get selfish with it as well. Like if you see stories with people who don't necessarily look like yourselves from different lived experiences, you get new stories. Yeah. You get to to experience something that you otherwise not w- exactly w- would not have. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really valued that I, I played both Mafia 3 and Watch Dogs 2 mm-hmm. within pretty close proximity to each other, and they're both uh, open-world action games about a you know, black protagonist, and it's part of the game. You know, It doesn't go totally unaddressed by the game. Like In either case, it's much more kind of part of the identity of it in Mafia 3, but just like playing those games and being like, games are putting people in the spotlight yeah. that they usually don't or that they didn't used to and just kind of feeling like that's really healthy for games as a medium and also just knowing that it's kind of acknowledging that like there are players out there that people who actually make and fund these things are saying like absolutely yeah like there there are people that there are people out there who want this because they identify with it there are people out there who want this just because it's not the same thing that they've seen a thousand times and that more and more, we as an industry aren't getting scared off by the whole, like, if it's not a white guy on the cover, it's not going to sell. Or if it's, you know, like, take your pick, kind of like, that won't be marketable. But seeing these big games go out there and say, they're going to be about people of color, they're going to be about queer people, they're going to be about people, whoever they are, and then the game about them is going to be good and, like, stand on its own, that's something that is... Um, just really encouraging, you yeah, know. I think just as a as, as some as an even if I wasn't in the industry as an observer, that's something that like you want to be seeing. I think we're 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 disproving a lot of sort of existing narratives. You know, it's if a woman's on the box art, if if a woman's on the cover, no one's gonna play it. No one's gonna go see that movie. What is one of the biggest movies of the year right now? Right. You know, fucking Wonder Woman. Yeah. What are what are some of the biggest action films of the year? Fast and the Furious with this huge diverse cast of, right. of, of, of you know multiracial characters. Well, and like I love the you know that they they brought back Star Wars and yeah. they've released two movies and they both have a female lead, both have like very diverse main cast of characters and, and it's like done hugely well all yeah. over the world. It's not like nobody's going to see them. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's only because it's Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's because like. That speaks to people. Yeah, and I, you know, there's no way, there's no reason to to, to back away from that. Like the the existing excuses are bad. Uh, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I've talked a lot about like my my work covering comics and stuff like that. The the ongoing stories are usually well stories with POC, stories with women, whatever. They just don't really really do well. You would watch it would be these sort of cycles of. You release a, a story with a female lead, or you release a story with a, a POC, and you kind of back it for the first couple of months, sort of tentatively, and then it fails. It's like, well, we didn't really try very much, and it failed. Yeah. So, <laughs> so see, guess, yeah, <laughs> see, uh, yeah, and uh, like, there's a Black Panther movie coming out in February, and I think they've canceled one of the two Black Panther books that are on shelves right now. Oh, really? So it's like, well, I guess I can point people to the main Black Panther comic, but there was like this sort of entryway World of Wakanda comic that would kind of introduce you to all the, the sort of politics and stuff like that in that space. Yeah. Why would you cancel that? Yeah. And it, it just feels like some of this stuff is always sort of also or other than and it, it, it feels essential and it's always sort of an experiment or a risk. Whereas, no, a black audience is there. A yeah. Latino audience is there. An Asian audience is there. Um, 
this is a complete total aside. My, my wife and I are watching Lion, this movie with Dev Patel the other day, and like mm-hmm. uh, at some point, the lead actor of Slumdog Millionaire has gotten handsome. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm watching this movie, and at one point, I'm thinking, why the fuck is this dude not like an international sex symbol? Right. Yeah. Why is this dude not out in the lead of like a big, you know? hundred million dollar action epic and it's because of all this sort of entrenched idea ideology of well we don't really have this cool let's do it let's yeah. do it for the first time and let's 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 give this this guy a chance to thrive because what do you what do you have to risk you're, you just get to do something interesting and new and you get to embrace an audience that otherwise isn't embraced yeah so i mean i guess that takes us to do you have i mean you don't have anything you can probably say about it but do you know about what what your next uh, big thing is here? No, or? Nothing I can really talk about yeah. right now. But are you working on? Are you in like early days of the next thing that you guys are working on? We're, we're talking about some stuff. Cool. Uh, so like that very early, just like what are we doing? Kind yeah. of stuff. Cool. Yeah, and it's it's all that that sort of exciting, nerve wracking period. Of, oh, there's so many opportunities, and yeah. oh god, there's so many opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you? Um, uh, this is. I mean, I would I would find it surprising if the answer was no. But I mean, do you feel like you're gonna you, do you have space to continue exploring more of the kind of social, racial, cultural issues that you've been able to so far? I would, I would love it if we did. Um, you know, at this point, we're just trying to disentangle all of our brains from Lincoln's story because yeah, that's a, sure. that's a hard world to be in for a few years. And, right. Uh, so we might just do a, a total 180 away from that. Yeah. Uh, it's a wacky comedy yeah. with the uh, bunnies and kitties. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, I, I just say this totally without, you know, sort of saying what, what it is that we're doing or where, we, where our yeah. heads are at at this point. But it, it does feel kind of good to just have that, that sort of open possibility. Yeah. Of playing well, with tone, playing with, with expectations. Yeah. Playing with well, it seems like be. the, I mean, one cool thing about, it seems like no matter what, that 2K to their credit, is, like, very supportive of saying, like, you want to take this chance, you want this to be, like, what you're doing, our job is to make that happen, as opposed to say, no, 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 it doesn't check this, this, in this box. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, were your, what was your experience like with, with Bioshock? But they've been nothing, at least from the level that I've seen, they've been nothing but supportive of, of Mafia 3. They've been nothing but just aggressive and trying to get this game out there in people's hands and, and I think that they know that part of their <laughs> identity as an entity is that like interesting stuff thematically yeah. story wise character wise things like Spec Ops The Line or Mafia 3 or Bioshock come out of 2K yeah. and I think that you know they don't want to shut that down in fact that that's as we see from something like Mafia 3 coming out and not being watered down in all these different aspects of its depiction and um, and, and its identity is kind of is testament to that which is thank you I, I hope that uh, that you have you know a continued uh, fruitful path forward with being able to explore whatever themes you guys are looking at in the, the next round they seem to like us so I think they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll take a risk on us again awesome well thank you so much for talking with me Charles about your whole uh, run up to the present day and, and all this fascinating stuff about, um, about Mafia 3 and, and your other projects. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Thank, yeah. you, thank you for coming up to talk to me. Yeah, sure. Bye. Bye.